Please turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 2. We're looking at verses 13 through 23. And as you turn there, I want to actually begin by asking a question. How confident are you in the claims of the Christian faith? How confident are you in the claims of who Jesus is? How confident are you in God's salvation plan accomplished through Jesus Christ? I'm convinced that we in the church and we as Christians are experiencing a crisis of confidence. I'm convinced that many Christians in the church are experiencing a crisis of doubt. Let's just take one phenomenon from the West, for example. Why is it that so many young people who grow up in the church, go to church every single Sunday with their parents, why is it that when they graduate from college, and maybe even before that, many of them end up walking away from the church and being altogether absent from the faith? That's not just my personal opinion, my subjective experience, that's objective truth. Scientific study and data has borne this out. Millions of Americans, at least, in the past 20 years, something like 40 million Americans, who once regularly attended church have walked away, de-churched, as they say. Why? I believe part of the cause, the reason, the answer is because there's a crisis of confidence in the church. Well, let's bring it closer to home for a moment, though. Let's take one example from our own lives when it comes to a crisis of confidence. When you hear of friends who have been visited and detained by the police, when you hear of churches being visited by the police, when you hear of events that have had been canceled, when you hear of authorities, rumors, campaigns against the church, What happens to your level of confidence in who Jesus is and God's plan of salvation? When you feel the heat, when you feel like the authorities might have you in their crosshairs, or maybe when doubts arise, what happens to your level of confidence in who Christ is? Friends, evil, evil has always attempted to thwart God's purposes. Evil has always opposed God's plans. And evil will continue its foolish fight against God's purposes until Christ comes. But I'm here to tell you this morning that you can have confidence in Christ And you can have confidence in God's salvation plan. Because despite evil's continued continued opposition to God's plan, nothing can thwart his salvation plan. You can have confidence in the claims of the Christian faith. And in our passage today, we are reminded and assured, it's made abundantly clear that God's precious promises of salvation cannot be thwarted no matter how powerful a ruler 
no matter how big and vast anti-Christian or evil forces might seem. Because in Christ, God has brought the kingdom of God near to us. No power of hell, no scheme of man can stop God's purposes of salvation in Jesus Christ. And so let's see that in our passage today of Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 through 23. Also printed for you in your bulletin. Matthew chapter 2, beginning at verse 13. What you're about to hear now is the very word of God. Now when they, that's the wise men, had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old and under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose, took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, and he would be called a Nazarene. And praise God for his holy word. Friends, I I want you to hear those words and take away this message that I believe Matthew is communicating to us as he was communicating to the original audience this text. And that is that evil continually opposes God's purposes. But God's salvation plan is unstoppable. Evil continually opposes God's purposes, but God's salvation plan is unstoppable. And we see right away here, God's people are no strangers to opposition. We need to remember that as we read again about Herod. Herod was a very wicked man, as we saw last time, but Herod, we need to understand, was just one man, one evil man, in a long line of evil people who opposed God's people and God's plan. Before Herod, there was Haman, who tried to execute Mordecai and the Jews. Before Haman, there was a Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. Before him, there was Shalamansar, the king of Assyria, 
Before him, there were, were the Philistines. Before them was Pharaoh. And before Pharaoh, we can go all the way back to the Garden of Eden and so on and so forth. God's people and God's plan has always been attempted to be thwarted by the forces of evil. And yet, each time those wicked people or powers tried to thwart God's plans for his people, God demonstrated who was in charge by delivering his people. And so Matthew, the author of this gospel, wants to reinforce the claims of who Jesus is here to boost our confidence, as it were. That Jesus, as we've seen in the first couple chapters of this gospel, Jesus is truly the Son of God. He is Emmanuel, God with us. That's one claim that our text makes in Matthew's gospel. But Jesus is also the son of David, the greater son, who is the king, the prophesied Messiah, the anointed king who will come, establish his kingdom, and defeat God's enemies. How can you know that's true? How can you believe the text? How can you believe who Jesus says he is? Well, Matthew wants to boost your confidence, as it were, not just to have you live on faith as a subjective feeling. Well, I feel that this is true but to actually see who Jesus is, and he fulfills the text of Scripture in a unique way that clarifies, convicts us that he is God's Son who will accomplish God's purposes. In Matthew, you notice three times in this text, he gives us three stories as it were, and at the end of each one it says, this is to fulfill what the prophet or prophets spoke of. And so we're going to look through three of these, each of these three stories to see just what it means that Jesus fulfills these prophecies. And the first one that we need to see here is Matthew wants to give us confidence in who the claims of who Jesus is. We need to see that Jesus leads us through a new exodus. We see that in verses 13 through 15. The first thing we need to see if we're to have confidence of who Jesus is and that he leads us and God accomplishes his plan of salvation through him as we need to see that Jesus leads a new exodus. Notice this in verse 13. An angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, and Joseph is told, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. Right away we see what kind of man Herod is, don't we? We know, we're about to see in a couple of verses later, Herod is bent on destroying God's Messiah. He sees Jesus, the promised Christ, as a threat. And so Herod's going to do everything he can to snuff him out. We saw last time, uh, there are really three types of reactions you can have to who Jesus is. One is indifference that was shown by the priests and the scribes, just sort of knowing that Jesus is there as a Christ, but not motivated at all at work to go and see him. The second response we saw with Herod was one of hostility. And of course, the third was the wise men who worshiped Christ for who he is. But here we see further King Herod's reaction. This is a bad guy. He reacts with hostility as Jesus is a threat to his power. And here's the point. Although Herod tries to exterminate Christ, God intervenes in a very miraculous way. And he intervenes by, did you notice this, that Herod, or excuse me, 
God appears through an angel to Joseph again in a dream to underscore that God is in control, that this is a divine moment of Christ's life, and God is going to intervene to save his Christ according to his plan. But then it says right here in verses 17 and 18 that this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet out of Egypt, I called my son. Now, what does that mean? Now, what is Matthew talking about here when he brings up this prophecy? Well, you need to know that this is coming from Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. Hosea was a, a minor prophet. That doesn't mean he was unimportant. It just means his amount of writing was less in comparison to people like Isaiah and Jeremiah. And Hosea, when he's writing this in the original context, he's not talking of actually about prophesying a Messiah to come. What Hosea is talking about there is the exodus of God's people from slavery in Egypt. Hosea is reminding, reminding the people of what God had done to, res- to rescue and redeem the entire people of Israel as his son. And you remember the peop- that uh, God's people in Egypt were enslaved, they were hated, they were under the thumb of a very tyrannical pharaoh. And that pharaoh tried everything he could to exterminate God's people. He made life hard for them. He made their labor difficult. And when that didn't work, he also ordered that all the male children, the babies, be put to death to keep the population of Israelites down. But the more they suffered, the more that God's people increased in number. And so Pharaoh became convinced that he needed to snuff God's people out. But what we saw, what God's people saw, is that God's salvation plan even then could not be thwarted by a man like Pharaoh. God raised up a man Moses to lead his people out of Egypt through the promised land, or through the wilderness into the promised land. God heard his people's cry for salvation. He knew. He knew their plight. So why does Matthew, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, bring up this text as a fulfillment of who Jesus is? Friends, it's simply saying that Jesus embodies this Exodus narrative, as it were, that Jesus is the greater Israel, that he represents his people, that he will bring them uh, through an even greater exodus out of slavery to sin and restore a relationship with the Heavenly Father. We think about it this way. Jesus has a representative. You know, we think of representatives. You know, one example I was trying to think of this week was, you know, have you guys ever had friends? I know some friends are very passionate about sports, They have their very favorite sports team. They watch them over and over. And when their team wins, or maybe they win a championship, they'll say, oh, we won. We did so great. Did you see how we played out there? Sometimes I want to say, well, you weren't on the field. It wasn't you. It was the team. But they so associate themselves with the team, right? They're so bought in that what the team does on the field and the accomplishments that the team has feels like to them that they did it. They were a part of it. The team represents them in some way. 
Well, in a much greater way, Jesus is our representative. Now, we didn't go through everything that Jesus did. Now, Jesus lived the life that we were unable to, but we, through faith, so closely identify with him that what he accomplished is truly applied to us. And so when it talks about here, out of Egypt I called my son, it's saying, Jesus is the greater Israel who will exit us, us out of sin and slavery and bondage. And we are so closely identified with Jesus that, we will, that God will not fail to deliver us. Uh, just as Jesus, uh, just as God did not fail to deliver his people out of Egypt, he will not fail to deliver us from our slavery to sin because God's plan of salvation is sure. God will never forget his people. He's jealous for them. And so there's no amount of evil that came to God's people in the Exodus that prevented him from saving them then. And so his message through this text today is, so too is there no evil that can be thrown at Jesus, no ruler so powerful that he will fail, he will not fail to accomplish his plan of ransoming us from evil. So although evil will continually oppose God's purposes, nothing can stop his plan of salvation. But there's a second reason for confidence here that Matthew wants us to see. And that's in verses 16 through 18. And Jesus not only leads us through another, through a, a new exile, or excuse me, exodus, but he also leads us home from exile, verses 16 through 18. And what happens next is a really gruesome, really sad turn of events when Herod realizes that the Christ is no longer in Bethlehem. We see his terrible act of evil. Here's what it says in verse 16. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old and under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. And can you imagine... How scary this must have been for the people living in Bethlehem in that region. Now, it's estimated, I don't think anyone knows exactly for sure, it's estimated that in Bethlehem and in the surrounding region there were maybe a thousand people. So it's not a lot. You could imagine, though, in that size of an area, there were probably about 20 or so babies, kids under two years old, males that would have been put to death. And I imagine with that small of an area and that few of a people, everyone would know somebody, a friend or a relative, whose baby was murdered because of Herod. Look at the devastation, the tears, the sadness over that sudden loss of life. But then Matthew here follows that up with another fulfillment of prophecy in the light of who Jesus is. Look again there, it says, Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. 
And what's Matthew doing now? Well, Matthew is bringing to mind another great redemptive act in his, Israel's history, the, the exile. So, you know, you fast forward from the Exodus and God's people go through the wilderness, they enter the promised land. You fast forward through all the terrible kings over Israel and Judah that precipitated this disastrous fall. God's people falling into idolatry, worshiping false gods. And after hundreds of years, God's saying enough is enough. And he judges them by sending them into exile through the hands of the Babylonians and Assyrians. And this text from Jeremiah is recalling part of the exile and the devastation that came. A voice was heard in Ramah. Ramah was a city on the way to Babylon as the people were going into exile. And what's happening is that the women, the mothers, are watching their children being taken into exile in Babylon, perhaps never see them again. And I don't think there's any amount of comfort that could be brought to those mothers seeing their children taken from them not knowing if they would ever see them again. The exile was a massively disruptive time for Israel and God's people. Incredible sadness. God's temple was destroyed. His place, his city was ransacked. His people dispersed, families broken. People wondering, is God still really with us? Imagine for the people of Israel, it seemed like their world was falling apart. Things looked hopeless. But then comes this prophecy from Jeremiah. If you read the book of Jeremiah, pretty much all up until this point, it's doom and gloom. But this prophecy that Matthew quotes from Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 31, Jeremiah chapter 31 is really the turning point in the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 31 is filled, it's a chapter filled with hope. Except for this verse that Matthew quotes. The surrounding text is encouragement, promises that God will restore his people. In fact, we read it just earlier in the service here in our reading of the gospel. Promise that God will forgive their iniquity. That he will write his law on their hearts. They will be his people. He will be his God. Although the exile was a wicked event at the hands of the Babylonians and the Assyrians, it wasn't out of God's hands. God used them to accomplish his plan of salvation, to restore his people so that they would turn their hearts back to him. Herod might have caused Joseph and his family to flee from Israel, It might have seemed as if evil was on the offensive in that moment, as if Herod was somehow winning. But God had them in his hands. It was according to his plan. As heinous as Herod's massacre was, just as the exile was heinous, as wicked as these political leaders were, it could not thwart God's salvation plan. In spite of the tears of suffering, There's sure hope because the Messiah has escaped and will come back again and he will reign according to God's plan. So you see, Joseph and his family will return 
as we see in the following verses, just like the exiles did return home after Babylon. Jesus is the greater Israel because he restores his people from exile. Through this Jesus, what seems like evil will be overcome by God's plan. Do you want to know who Jesus is? Do you want to know why you can have confidence in the claims of Jesus and God's salvation plan? It's because Jesus promises to restore you into God's people and lead you home from exile. In Jesus, as one person said, we have God's promised hope surrounding now our present sorrow. It might seem, friends, like this world, oftentimes like evil has the upper hand. Week to week, recently, we don't know where we're going to meet. You might read the news and look at wars and rumors of wars that are happening around the world. You might read of shootings, mass shootings happening in different parts of the world. You might hear vile stories of people abused and hurt. Whatever past sufferings, I don't know, you've endured. But you need to know that in Jesus, we have God's promised hope surrounding our present sorrow. That just like the exiles who were cast out of God's promised land, the sorrow of losing children, yet there was the promised hope that they would be restored. Jesus has come to restore his people and to restore the blessings of peace and prosperity that God has offered. So if you ever look at the state of the church in the world today, you read in the news or in social media, or you look around at our situation today, read about churches, about Christians who are persecuted, churches attacked, news about friends like Neil and Dave, detained and expelled. You tempted to despair, to lose confidence. Well, as Christians, we don't deny that with the breaking in of God's kingdom, there's also anti-Christian powers. But we can have confidence that since Christ has conquered, because his kingdom is advancing, that even these anti-Christian forces are under God's total control and ultimately serve his purposes. So when things seem hopeless, remember, God has a plan. Take comfort in the fact that evil, although it continually rages against God's purposes, it cannot stop God's plan of salvation. We live in the hope of restoration because God has a plan of salvation. That's the second reason for confidence that we can have. Jesus leads us home in a new exile. But also verses 19 through 23 show us how Jesus does this, who Jesus is, because Jesus leads us by his humiliation and suffering as well. You know, in his plan of salvation, God uses means and ways that are far above our understanding and imagination sometimes. He uses insignificant things of this world. He uses the weak to shame the strong. He uses the foolish things of this world to, to bring down the, 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 the strong. 
That's how he accomplishes his salvation plan. He proves this to us in his own son, in Jesus Christ. And you can see that in the final verses of our passage. Matthew shows us what kind of savior Jesus is and how he leads us. Let's read it again here, starting on verse 19. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled and he would be called a Nazarene. And we see right away, again here in these verses, how God dramatically intervenes. He divinely intervenes in this narrative. And this is maybe the fourth or fifth time in Matthew's Gospel where the Lord has appeared to Joseph in a dream. He does that to underscore just how miraculous it is that Jesus is born, but also to show that God is in complete control here. And I love how Joseph, each time, is obedient to God's word. He doesn't hesitate. He doesn't talk back. He doesn't grumble or complain. He complies, showing that he trusts in God's salvation plan, that he's confident in God's word. Well, their angel appears twice in this passage, first telling Joseph to return to Israel. And then when they are returning, again, the angel appears to tell him not um, to go to, to return back to Bethlehem because Archelaus is there. Archelaus certainly was a bad ruler. He was Herod's son, one of them. Uh, Archelaus was so bad that even the Roman emperor um, removed him from power because he was such a terrible governor of that region. So Joseph and his family were right to listen to God and relocate to Galilee. And we need to understand here what this means. Why does it say here in Matthew's third fulfillment phrase, what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Now this is a little bit different than the other two fulfillments, if you notice this closely. The one here in verse 23, it says this was spoken by the prophets, plural. Now the other two is you know, fulfilled by the prophet, or spoken by the prophet, singular. And we know in these first two, the first one from, is from Hosea, the second prophecy is from Jeremiah, but this third one, spoken by the prophets, uh, we can't point to any Old Testament text and say, see, there it is. That's the context of that prophecy where it's fulfilled. Uh, we don't actually know, but what the consensus is, is that Matthew is gathering from several different texts about what kind of Messiah God's word had prophesied. Whom should we expect? What kind of Messiah is going to be coming? Because the type of Messiah that comes is unlike any most people are expecting. We see this in how Matthew draws out the location, the location, the geography here is very significant when it comes to knowing who Jesus is and what type of Messiah he's going to be. So look again, this is 
Galilee and specifically the city of Nazareth that Joseph and his family go to. It was the family home of Joseph and Mary before they went to Bethlehem where Jesus was born. But Nazareth, you need to know, was no significant city. That's an understatement. Nazareth was a backwater. Uh, This is where the yokels came from. Uh, This is where the hicks came from. Nazareth was a nobody town. It was a town of scorn. It was a town of mockery. Uh, Jews made fun of Nazareth. Um, They had mocking phrases about people who came from Nazareth. In fact, if you look at John's Gospel in chapter 1, you may remember that when Nathaniel's called to go see who Jesus is, he hears that he's from Nazareth, what what does Nathaniel say? He says, can anything good come from Nazareth, right? Nothing good. It's a worthless place, a worthless town. It's a dump of a town where people go to be forgotten. It's insignificant. And Matthew's saying, exactly. Uh, This is the type of person whom God is going to use. This is the type of Messiah of whom was prophesied. Jesus is the Messiah whom people will look down upon. He's underscoring that Jesus will lead a new exodus. He will bring us home from exile, but he'll do it in a very surprising way as a scorned and as a suffering servant. He's not going to be coming as this pompous king from a palace riding on a big horse with a huge army behind him. He's not going to be coming into Jerusalem loaded down with jewels and gold. He's not going to be coming with the cut-off heads of his enemies. He's going to be coming with no place to lay his head. He's going to be coming as one who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. When Matthew quotes here from the prophets, he's thinking of places like Isaiah chapter 53, when it says, For he grew up before him like a young plant, And like a root out of dry ground, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. This is your Messiah. Or in Psalm 22, the words of Christ prior to his incarnation, but I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind, despised by the people. This is the type of Messiah that Christ is. He'll be humiliated, scorned. He'll be opposed. He'll be fought every single day of his life, even from birth. Matthew's preparing people to understand that because this is really the last part of Jesus' childhood that we're going to read in the book of Matthew. Because what comes next is really going to be practically the start of his earthly ministry. He's preparing us to understand what's about to come. It's a Messiah unlike any you might have thought of. He's going to lead his people by suffering, and he's going to lead his people in the face of opposition. Herod might have been the first 
but he certainly wasn't the last to oppose Jesus Christ. His entire earthly ministry, Jesus will be opposed. At times, he'll even be opposed or rejected by his own disciples. But he's going to be opposed by religious priests, the scribes, the Pharisees. He's going to be opposed by the Sadducees. He's going to be opposed by political powers, by Pilate. He'll be sentenced to die by the Romans. Resistance to Christ will finally come to a climax at the cross. The cross stands as evil's climactic attempt to oppose God's salvation plan. Herod, the Jews, the Romans, they're malicious. Although Christ was oppressed, although he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. And here's the thing. They succeed in murdering Jesus at the cross. <coughs> Evil thinks that it's one in that moment. But friends, the good news of the gospel is that even that wicked act of crucifixion of the suffering servant could not thwart God's salvation plan in Jesus Christ. It actually furthered it. After all, this is what Peter said at Pentecost in Acts 2. This Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. What we need to understand we're going to understand the claims of Christ, if we're going to have confidence those claims are true and that God's salvation plan is sure, we need to understand that God uses even that act of evil to accomplish his plan, to nail our sins to the cross. He pours out his wrath against the sin of believers on Christ. It's only because of Christ's crucifixion that you can be exodused delivered from bondage to sin. It's only because of the cross, God using that act of evil, that you can be restored, brought home from exile to a relationship with God. And all of that is yours through faith alone in Christ. In our passage today, God's showing us that Jesus is the promised Messiah, delivers his people from evil opposition. He shows The gracious promises of God cannot be stopped. And if you're going to be a Christian living on this side of heaven, you need to understand evil will continue to oppose God's purposes. You can expect, like Jesus, to be mocked and scorned. Jesus said, no servant is greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they'll also persecute you. We can expect opposition to the church. You can face that opposition by looking to the one who endured all things for our sake. So when wicked rulers enact policies targeting Christians, when we read of or hear of churches being visited by the police, when we hear of friends being expelled from the country, when Christians' institutions are labeled as bigoted or backwards, It might seem like the church is dying or that the faith is diminishing, but it's not. You have hope and confidence that nothing will thwart God's plan of salvation. God will continue to build his kingdom. Jesus said, I'll build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it.
So friends, let's give thanks to God for the confidence that we have in Christ. He leads us through a new exodus, home from exile, through his humiliation and suffering that he endured on the cross. Amen. Amen. Let's go to God in prayer.